You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the inexplicable murder of Garrett Phillips. Hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so glad to have you here with me this week. I hope that all of you had an amazing weekend. Um, Over here, we are currently in the midst of our spring break at our house, and things are getting wild. (laughs) If by wild, you mean being able to sleep in until 9 a.m. and wear pajamas until dinner time. (laughs) We never really go anywhere for spring break because we are just not huge fans of crowds or people. Um, So my daughter is still little, so she's not even remotely happy that school is out. She's actually like really sad because she's at this age where she loves school. So when we told her about spring break and what the concept of spring break was, she was not too thrilled. So is it spring break where you guys are at? I know everyone is a little bit different. I think that they should do spring break later where I live personally, because the beginning of April is always a little iffy. Like sometimes it's warm and beautiful and other times you're like freezing your butt off. I know because my husband and I are having our anniversary soon. It's going to be nine years coming up. And the day of our wedding, it started out kind of cold. Then it got a little warm. Then it was windy. And then there was a thunderstorm with hail. So yeah, we all know how indecisive and unpredictable April can be. Well, whatever it is that you're doing this week, I hope that this week treats you well. You definitely deserve it. Today's episode is a listener suggestion from Julie B. Thank you so much for reaching out, Julie. She sent me this case quite a while ago, so I'm excited to finally have a chance to share with all of you what I have learned through researching this case. If you want to suggest a case, um, please do so by sending me a message at my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. There you can reach out, comment, and converse with other listeners. I love to hear your theories, your thoughts, your ideas about the cases that I cover. If you can't get enough of me there, I know, I know, I'm very in demand. (laughs) Just kidding. You can visit the website, mysterystillunsolved.com. Okay, so don't get me wrong. I do love listener suggestions, but I've got a bone to pick with Julie. (laughs) This case is a child case, and you all know how I feel about those. My mom's heart cannot really handle doing these cases very often because it's just too gut-wrenching and traumatizing and triggering for me. So when Julie sent me this case, I actually didn't know it was a child when I like decided, okay, I'm going to do this case this week because I'd never heard of this case before. I just saw a guy's name and I was like, all right, I actually don't cover too many men cases on my podcast. So that'd be great. I will do a men's case. Um, But then I started looking into it um, and I realized that it was a kid. And then I was like, oh no, oh no, I can't, I can't, I cannot cover this case. But then I started looking into it and how could I say no? Garrett's story deserves to be told. There are so many shady things going on with this case. 
He needs as many platforms as we can give him. And so even though child cases are super triggering for me, I can honestly say that I feel honored to talk about Garrett with all of you today on this episode. Um, so let's begin. It was a rainy October day in Potsdam, New York, which is in upstate New York, where is kind of where I'm from. It's more north than where I grew up. Um, so it was a rainy October day in Potsdam when Marissa Vogel and her longtime boyfriend decided to cuddle up on the couch and watch an episode of their favorite TV program, Dexter. After about 10 to 20 minutes of watching the show, the couple heard running in the apartment next door, then a crash, then a thud. Then they thought they heard someone say, ow, or maybe it was no. But then after that, they definitively heard a distinct help. They couldn't really tell exactly what the voice was saying, but they knew that it was a child's voice. Tandy Cyrus and her two young boys, Garrett and Aaron, had recently moved into the apartment after Tandy ended a one-year relationship. Marissa knew that Tandy was a single mom, hustling, getting it all together, and she worked at a bank by day and as a bartender by night. She knew that Tandy's oldest son would be home at this time and that from what she heard through the wall of her apartment, it sounded like he needed help. So she immediately went over and knocked on, the, on her neighbor's door. She heard nothing. So she knocked again. And again, nothing. Just as Marissa was deciding in her mind whether she should attempt to open the door or if she should knock again or if she should return back to her apartment, she heard something that sent chills down her spine. A click. And not just any click. The clicking of the door's lock. She knew in that moment that there was someone, someone on the other side of that door who did not want her to go in there. Marissa was no fool. She quickly went back to her apartment and contacted the authorities. Minutes later, Officer Wentworth arrived. He knocks on the door and doesn't hear anything at first, but then he starts to hear like a shuffling sound, as if someone is walking around or pacing just on the other side of the door. The landlord is then called to assist in getting that door open. After about three minutes, Officer Wentworth starts to get antsy. He decides that someone in there could be in danger or need help, and he can hear someone in there. He doesn't want to wait any longer, so he basically busts down the door and gets inside the apartment. Officer Wentworth first sees Garrett's backpack. Then he sees Garrett's ripstick that he used to ride to and from school every day. And then just inside Garrett's mother's bedroom, the officer finds 12-year-old Garrett himself laying on the floor and unresponsive. The police officer immediately went into action. He called for an ambulance, and he wanted to try and get in contact with Garrett's mother, Tandy. When Tandy was contacted, she wasn't told exactly what the emergency regarding her son was, so she kind of assumed that it was like a broken bone, maybe a broken shoulder, or something of that nature. She had no idea when she entered Garrett's hospital room that day that she would not be leaving the hospital with Garrett. After it was attempted several times to resuscitate Garrett, he was pronounced dead at the hospital. Initially, the death was thought to be cardiac arrest, which, as we know, is very unusual for an otherwise healthy child. 
So an autopsy was ordered and performed to try to figure out why someone at such a young age would have died in such an unexpected way. But upon the medical examiner's review, this was not just a death by cardiac arrest. The medical examiner noted rug burns all over Garrett's body and unusual markings on his face and neck. The next day, Tandy went to the Potsdam Police Department and was told of the medical examiner's terrible findings. The final autopsy had revealed that the cause of death was not cardiac arrest. It was asphyxiation and strangulation. This was no freak accident. Someone had been in that apartment that day. Someone had been in her home, and that person had murdered her son, Garrett Phillips. But why? And by whom? And how did they get out so quickly? Let's rewind and learn a little bit more about Garrett's life and the environment previous to his death. Garrett was a popular 12-year-old sixth grader. He loved anything outdoors and was pretty adventurous. He was always smiling with a slightly mischievous grin. He loved to play sports and video games with his friends. Shortly before his death, like minutes before his death, he was captured on surveillance footage riding his ripstick home from school. Eight minutes before, Melissa Vogel phoned the police. The reason Tandy and her two young boys had just moved into this new apartment was because Tandy had just ended a one-year relationship with a man named Nick Hillary. Tandy was the small-town heartbreaker. She had her pick of the men in her tiny town. So, it was shocking to everyone when she began dating Nick Hillary. Not because he wasn't good-looking, he's very good-looking, but because he was a Jamaican immigrant. Now, why would this be so odd to the people? Well, I guess, I mean, there's no easy way to say this, but because Potsdam is a tiny town and because Potsdam is primarily white, the interracial component of the relationship was ruffling some people's feathers. People were whispering and there were rumors being spread and everybody was wondering why would she pick him when she could be with anyone? Why him? Well, let's answer that question. Nick says it's because Tandy believed in him and his passions. Nick had emigrated to America when he was 16. He had served in the military for three years and then attended um, a local university. While going to school there, he played on the soccer team and helped them achieve multiple victories. After graduating from the university, he moved to Florida, where he became a math teacher. Later, he decided to return to upstate New York and got a job as a soccer coach at Clarkson University. But Nick also loved children, and so during his free time, he would coach kids soccer. Tandy really loved sports. She'd actually played soccer herself, and she supported Nick's passion in teaching children. Tandy says that Nick was fun to be around. He was eloquent. He was nice and respectful towards her and her family. The two had a lot in common and they had similar life goals and they tried to not let it bother them, all of the mean and hurtful and sometimes hateful things that people felt inclined to say about them and the nature of their relationship. The town was living in the 1960s basically, but Tandy and Nick were living in 2011. But as much as they chose to withstand the criticism and embrace love and equality within the walls of their own home that they shared together, they couldn't control what Tandy's children were facing at school. There was apparently a lot of tension between Garrick and Nick, especially. I do not know this for certain. I'm just speculating here. So this is just me standing on my Rochelle soapbox, but 
I'll take a guess that the reason there was so much tension and hostility going on between Garrett and Nick was because Garrett was in middle school. And middle schoolers are literally the freaking worst. And I'm sure that by living in a town that was like 95% white, Garrett was getting crap from a lot of the kids at his school about his mom dating a black guy. Is it stupid that that was likely happening? Yeah. Should it be happening in the same age? No. But does it happen? Of course it does. Because kids just mimic the views and opinions that they see and hear within their home. So it's only obvious that since Tandy and Nick were dealing with older people, their age, peers, hating on their relationship, that that would trickle down. So after a year of their relationship, the tension and the outside circumstances became too much. And even though the two loved each other very, very much, Tandy and Nick both agreed that it wasn't fair that Tandy's children were being harassed and just people were being awful to them at school. And so in their best interest, the two decided to part ways. So now let's go back to the day of the incident. Marissa Vogel called the police and minutes later, an officer was searching the apartment intending to Garrett. How did the person who locked the door when Marissa came to check in on Garrett get out without being detected by the officer? The police say the killer made an acrobatic escape from a second story rear window. When the officer scanned the apartment, a bedroom window was ajar with the screen seemingly kicked out of it. Judging by the 20-foot drop, police are able to start building a picture of their suspect. I mean, the person had to be agile or athletic, and also there was an imprint in the mud below the apartment window, and from the way that the imprint was made, um, it was quite possible that the person who jumped from that window was possibly injured from the impact of that fall. Officers questioned people for days. Had anyone in the neighborhood or a passerby noticed anyone coming in or out of the apartment building around that time, or had anyone seen someone jump out of a rear window? And sadly, they came up with nothing. They did, however, have two witnesses of something. But what that something was, and if it's important to the case, is tricky. Because they didn't really witness it visually. They more so witnessed it audibly. So apparently, shortly before Melissa called the police, Shannon Harris and her boyfriend, Andrew, were outside of the apartment. um, And she was kind of like, not helping her boyfriend replace the tire, but just kind of being there with him while he replaced the tire. And she claims that while she was out there with him, she kept hearing something like indistinguishable sounds. And she kept looking around to see where the sounds could be coming from and what they were. And she couldn't tell exactly what it was, but it did sound off to her. So Shannon and her boyfriend finally leave at 5.20 p.m., which is important because at 5.21, the officer gets into the apartment and the person who had been shuffling around in there was nowhere to be seen. So it's entirely possible that the person inside was waiting for Shannon and her boyfriend to leave, which would give him or her the opportunity to jump out of the window just in time to escape the officer and not be seen. So, so close within like a matter of seconds. It was so very close that this person would have been caught. The town of Potsdam was up in arms. It's a small, close-knit community, as we discussed. A lot of people knew Garrett. 
Um, a lot of people knew Tandy and knew their family, and everyone demanded that someone be held responsible. Okay, so now let's talk about some of the theories of what could have happened to Garrett. In my opinion, there are four pretty strong possibilities. So let's talk about theory number one. This is a theory that most people know. This is a theory that the cops are sticking to no matter how ridiculous it is. All right, so police quickly narrowed in on a suspect, ex-boyfriend of Garrett's mother, Nick Hillary. All right, so that's not really the crazy part. It doesn't seem too crazy to me that they'd want to question him. Tandy and Nick had only broken up like a month before, so yeah, I don't think it's unusual at all that they would question the men in Garrett's life um, following his murder. Very rarely is someone murdered or attacked by someone they don't know. Of course, ex-boyfriends, biological family members, coaches, teachers, friends, neighbors are going to be questioned. Standard, right? Well, no. Because in this case, no one else was questioned except for Nick Hillary. And uh, why Why do you think it was that they uh, singled out Nick Hillary? Hmm. I'll leave that up to you to decide, but if you had one guess, what do you think it would be? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it is that obvious. Moving on. It was very well known that Garrett didn't like Nick. They fought a lot for the reasons we talked about before. Garrett was getting crapped on by the other kids at school for his mom dating a black guy, and as a 12-year-old, you're going to be mad at what you perceive the reason of your bullying is. And and in a 12-year-old's mind, that's probably not going to be years of systemic blatant racism, it's going to be the boyfriend that's ruining your life. Um, but let me just start right off by saying that I think this theory is a bunch of freaking bull. For starters, I'm just going to say it. If I feel like Nick was narrowed in on because he's black and one of only like 10 black guys that lived in the town, a reporter from Potsdam was interviewed once and she said she absolutely believed that the arrest of Nick Hillary was racially motivated and had nothing to do with any actual evidence against him. She went on to explain that Potsdam is 95% white and almost half, maybe even more than half, are involved um, with their careers either in law enforcement or they work at the state's prison nearby. And it's all starting to make sense now, isn't it? When you've got a tiny town, whose only real association with people of color is in a prison facility, there is going to be implicit racial bias there. I mean, they're not really getting to have interactions with Black people in regular situations like PTA or work or church or sports. They only see them when they're working with them behind bars. And that's a real issue. Also, Right off the bat, there were problems. So apparently the night of Garrett's death, police went to Nick's house to notify him. Immediately, Nick reaches out to Tandy and the family to ask how they're doing, what happened, and what he can do to help. After talking to them, he calls his friend Manny, who's his best friend and a former soccer teammate, who just happens to also be a big, fancy New York City lawyer now. And as much as Manny is sad for his friend and sad for his loss, his spidey senses are tingling, and he tells Nick, Nick, they think you did it. And Nick's like, no way. They just came to inform me of the death. And Manny's like, yeah, no, they don't do that with ex-boyfriends. They suspect you. And as much as Manny hopes that he's wrong, ultimately, he ends up being right. 
Shortly after Nick is brought in to look at a roster of students, big air quotes there, because as soon as they have Nick in a room, they just start questioning him about his whereabouts at the time of Garrett's murder. Nick feels uneasy and says, you know, I'm happy to answer all of your questions, but I mean, you guys brought me down here to look at a list and now I feel like I'm being interrogated. So what is the context of these questions? And the cops are like, We'll ask the questions around here, buddy. Don't you worry about it. Then they start asking him questions and Nick is just answering no comment. I know where I was, but I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to tell you. And then the officers start reading Nick his rights, but tell him, we're, we're reading you your rights, but don't worry, buddy. You're not arrested or anything. You're not arrested. So Nick is smart and he takes out his phone and calls Manny, his lawyer buddy. And it's funny because at one point you can see this on the the footage that they show and the officer asks him, hey, are you on the phone? And Nick is like, yeah, I am. And the cop is like, why? And Nick says, because I'm implementing my Sixth Amendment right. And the cop says, what is that? And Nick says, "Uh, you know what that means. And then the cop goes silent. So that's a really funny part. But then the police take his phone away. They're blocking the door. So even though they've repeatedly told Nick that he's not arrested, they're not letting Nick leave. Um, His phone rings and he asks the officers in a really polite way if he can answer the phone because it's his lawyer and they won't let him answer it. So when Manny can't get in touch with Nick, Manny knows something is bad, bad, real bad, and he drops everything and makes the seven-hour drive to get to his friend. While he's driving to meet with his friend, Nick is arrested. The detectives believe that because Garrett didn't like Nick, Nick felt he had to get Garrett out of the way in order to get Tandy back. And that's their motive, which sounds ridiculously stupid to me. Then they get a warrant to do a strip search of, well, then they claim to get a warrant to strip, to do a strip search of Nick's body in the detective's office, but it turns out that there was not even a warrant. They were literally just bluffing. Um, One officer says that the night after Garrett's murder, he attended a soccer game that Nick was coaching because he had been instructed to keep an eye on him. And this officer claims that during that soccer game, he noticed that Nick was limping. But recently, a cell phone video was released of that very soccer game in question. And shocker, there is video footage of Nick at the game and plot twist, he's not limping. He's in ship shape. In fact, at halftime, Nick runs to the locker room and beats the 18, 19, and 20-year-old players that he coaches. And on top of that, Nick has a super solid alibi for when Garrett was murdered. Police questioned Ian, who was Nick's assistant coach, who gave Nick the alibi and said, okay, so... Do you and Nick have, like, a tight enough relationship that if Nick asked you to lie for him that you'd do it? And Ian says, no, absolutely not. And he said that he has phone records to prove it, and they turn out to be viable. Um, At that time that Garrett was being murdered, Nick and Ian were actually on the phone. Nick was making sure that Ian was going to be at a meeting at the university that was happening in, like, one minute. They stayed on the phone until they met up a minute later to go into the meeting together. Other people at the university saw him there as well. We should mention that Tandy Cyrus, Garrett's mom, did sign a statement in which she claims that Nick was always awful to Garrett and that he wanted to hurt Garrett, and Nick is totally shocked by this, but also 
He refuses to hold it over Tandy. He knows that Tandy would have never written that statement on her own volition. He believes that she was manipulated and prompted into writing that statement by people who took advantage of her desperation and grief. He knows that Tandy in her heart knows that he would never do anything to hurt Garrett or any child because she just knows him. In all of the interviews of Nick, he always has only positive things to say about Tandy and the people who think that he did it. He says he understands that people are desperate for answers, and since police are telling them that he did it, he doesn't blame them for being skeptical of him. But everything he says in this interview seems incredibly genuine. It doesn't seem rehearsed. It doesn't seem staged. So, like, I feel like I believe him. There has never been any DNA or any type of evidence leaking Nick to the crime. There's none of his DNA in the apartment at all. Nick went to trial for this crime, and you know his best friend Manny was there to help him every step of the way in this five-year battle for truth. So after Nick was arrested and had those pictures taken of him, he was actually put in jail for 70 days, and then um, his lawyer gets him out on bail. Then the judge dismisses the indictment against Nick Hillary because the prosecutor's team didn't have enough evidence. And then also Mary Rain, who was like the prosecutor at the time, was found by the judge um, to be like harassing the witnesses. One of the witnesses was Shauna, who is Nick's eldest daughter, who was with him at the time that um, Garrett was murdered. And the judge said, you cannot ask her these inappropriate questions on the stand. Um, It never really gets into what the inappropriate questions were, um, but he hasn't been convicted of anything. um, And so he's released and he's literally treated by the town like he's a monster. He lost his job. His ex-wife is getting harassed by association. So she hightails out of there and leaves Nick with their children to, you know, take care of him with no job. No one wants to associate with him or with his children. It was tough for them. It was really tough. And some people wonder why Nick wouldn't just leave Potsdam, to which I say, with what resources? He lost his job. He felt like the community, no one wanted to interact with him, and he probably didn't want to move and make people think he's even more guilty. So, he decides to file a civil case against the police department. He wanted to slowly erase what they had started in deconstructing and um, just literally trashing everything that he'd worked so hard for in the last 20 years. They took it away from him in like 20 minutes. So he sues them for illegal arrest, defamation, and for taking those nudie pics that they took of him that were illegally taken. Um, Manny, Nick's lawyer friend, says, quote, justice for Garrett is the same thing as justice for Nick Hillary. The cops at this point don't want to know the truth. They just want to convict someone which isn't right, end quote. All right, so now we move on to theory number two. Enter John Jones, the sheriff deputy of Potsdam, Tandy's ex-boyfriend. This guy gives me Every variety and shade of the heebie-jeebies. Very early on, we learned that there is a connection between Sheriff John Jones and the deceased. What is the connection? Tandy. Tandy and John had dated and lived together for many, many years when their relationship began to fizzle. They still lived together towards the end, even though the relationship had run its course because Tandy was trying to find a place to live with her two boys. She was trying to, you know, get accommodations. 
It was during this time that she met Nick, and Nick was recently separated from his wife, and although not officially divorced, um, he and Tandy started hanging out together. One day, and John wants you to know that this is not weird or creepy at all, John just happened to see Tandy and Nick drive by at like 6 o'clock in the morning, a.k.a. He was stalking and following her because no one just happens to see their boy, their girlfriend with another man at 6 o'clock in the morning. Then he just happened to run into Nick later that day when he went to Nick's house to confront him. Then he just happened to run into Nick's estranged wife at her job in an attempt to stir up stuff. I mean, isn't that just the darnest thing that all those things would happen in perfect succession? It almost sounds, oh, I don't know, unbelievable. Okay, so when Tandy finds out something really bad has happened to Garrett and that the police are involved, she calls John Jones. I don't really know why she calls him. I'm guessing it's because she felt like she could trust him and because he's like on the force and maybe he could give her insider information. John immediately calls his current girlfriend and tells him that he's not going to be around for the next few days because he has to be there for his ex-girlfriend during this time of grief and uncertainty. All right. At first, this might seem like a man who is just comforting a friend. What's wrong with that? But I got to tell you, I picked up something from Manny and now my spidey senses are tingling. And right off the bat, I don't like this guy. He just seems too involved. He seems creepily involved to the point where I think he might be involved. You know what I mean? The day after the murder, Tandy is being interviewed and John Jones is with her because he brought her to the interview and sits in on it. Apparently, it's something that Tandy wanted, and so the officers accommodated that. But in hindsight, investigators say they probably wouldn't have let him in to the interview today, but at the time they did, and there's just not really anything that they can do about it. And John Jones, I got another bone to pick with him because this guy isn't just there for moral support, and he's not just hanging back during the interview. He was holding on to Tandy's hand like she was about to take off into space. There is not one moment during this entire interview that he is not either touching her or holding her or speaking for her. It's seriously so annoying. It's very clear to me that he wants to be calling the shots or be in charge in some way of the direction of this questioning. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention that the apartment... Okay, so that apartment Tandy and the boys had just moved into had been suggested to them by John Jones. But John wants us to know. He really wants to drill it in that he didn't suggest it because he would be close. He didn't he didn't suggest it because he wanted Tandy to be close to him. It's because he was always thinking of the boys. And it was very close to the school and he's just always thinking about the boys. So, ugh, told you. I'm a little skeptical of him. Okay, fine. You got me. I'm blatantly skeptical of him. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. John Jones, that dude I don't like very much, says that he doesn't have a doubt in his mind that Nick Hillary is responsible for the death of Garrett. He says he believes all of his friends on the force who, you know, did all this research and followed all these leads, and they're all telling him that Nick Hillary is their man. But that's a lie. It's a bold-faced lie because there was never any other leads. There were never any other leads. The focus has and always has been on Nick Hillary. It was also discovered that 10 months before Garrett's death, 
Tandy Cyrus, Garrett's mom, had actually filed several complaints against John Jones, stating essentially that because of their past relationship, she feared for her life and for the life of her children because he was basically threatening her. She claims that John is so desperate to get back at her that he is willing to abuse and misuse his badge to hold a grudge. John is brought into his boss's office to be reprimanded uh, for these complaints when he tells his boss that Tandy could not have possibly written these formal complaints because, quote, Tandy doesn't even know the definition to most of these words, end quote. So yeah, he's basically calling Tandy stupid. I got so mad. Um, I watched this documentary and it had like the formal complaints and so I paused it and I read the letters and there is nothing in those letters that a grown woman who works at a bank couldn't understand. She definitely knew the definitions of all of those words and John was just being a jerk. But it's even weirder that the boss actually believes him, even though the letters were signed and notarized. So seriously, it's just really ridiculous. All right, but Tandy, I want to know, you are here. Where are you and what are your thoughts on this? I don't understand why she's not speaking up that yes, she did write them or no, she didn't. So now this makes everything really messy because if she did write those letters, then why was John Jones the one to find Tandy when no one else could find her? Why is it that he insisted Tandy be interviewed with him? If she was really afraid of him, why would she want him in there? It just isn't making any sense to me. Another interesting thing to note is that there's a witness named Gregory Brown, and he said that he saw John Jones enter the building where Garrett's apartment was only 15 minutes before Garrett's death. And Gregory Brown knew John Jones because they played football together in high school, and Gregory Brown was a bouncer at a club that John Jones um, often frequented. But when John Jones is questioned about who Gregory Brown is, he pretends like he doesn't know him um, because, quote, and yes, this is a direct quote, so buckle up. I repeat, buckle up. Quote, I don't know who that is because I assume from his name, his nickname was G Money, that he's a black person and I just don't really associate with many black people, end quote. Ooh, yikes. All right. This is Rochelle's soapbox time, and when I spew out my opinion, don't hold it against me because it's just, it's not fact, it's just my opinion. I think it's very obvious that John Jones was not over his ex. Who could blame him? Tandy is beautiful and smart and sweet and fun. I think, in my personal opinion, that it makes way more sense that John Jones would want to get Nick out of the way and be there for Tandy during a very hard time to comfort her and possibly reignite something, that it would make more sense than the motive that they gave to Nick. Am I saying that I think John Jones murdered Garrett? Of course not, because I am not legally allowed to say that. So, that's not what I'm saying insert air quotes there, okay? I'm not doing it, but you can do it for me in your mind, okay? And that just makes more sense to me, honestly. So you might be thinking, if there's all this stuff against John Jones, then how come he's not in jail? Okay, well, first off, he's a cop and his friends are working the case. But also, 
because there is surveillance of John Jones walking his dog at the time. In fact, there's a video of Garrett passing not only Hillary's car on his way home from school, but if you watch the tape for like another 30 seconds, you can see John Jones walking his dog. And apparently you can't take your dog to go murder someone, so that's why John Jones has not really been looked into. Also, um, at the, during the autopsy, the medical examiner did find DNA underneath Garrett's fingernails, um, and that DNA was tested, and it didn't match John Jones, but it also didn't match Nick Hillary. So, yeah, it gets a little tricky. Okay, so I want to backtrack because I know that I told you that in that surveillance footage, uh, Garrett passes not only Hillary's vehicle, but also he passes by um, John Jones during his walk home. And something you got to know about Potsdam is Potsdam is super tiny. It's like a couple blocks Everybody, everything and everybody is within a couple blocks of each other. So don't let that, you know, confuse you or, I don't know, don't get too hung up on it because it's just a super teeny tiny town. All right. So now we have theory number three. So according to social media around the time of Garrett's death, there was another theory discussed by the local townspeople. The theory was that Garrett might have had a friend over and that the two might have been horsing around as 12-year-old boys do. Um, And something incredibly unfortunate happened. People think that it could have been a terrible accident. Apparently, there was something going around in 2011 called the knockout game. Um, I didn't know what it was, so I looked it up, and it's like when you run up to an unsuspected victim and basically sucker punch them, and the point of the game is to get that person that you punched to pass out. It's a very seriously stupid trend that I had not heard of, uh, but now that I know what it is, I'm like, that's so dumb. How seriously stupid, but yet I'm not all that surprised that it was a thing. I mean, hello, Tide Pods, anyone? Need I say more? So yeah, I mean... I think that that theory is definitely a possibility. I mean, do we know if any of the boys from the neighborhood or from Garrett's school, like, had a broken arm or an injury around the time that Garrett was murdered? No. No, we do not know because a decent investigation was never conducted. The Potsdam police just narrowed it down on one dude, which I don't know how many times we have to go over this on this podcast, but you have to follow the clues and the crumbs to the killer, not just find a person that you think did it and then try to force the puzzle pieces to fit together when they don't. All right. End of rant. One day people will get it. Until then, I'm going to keep raging about it on this podcast. All right. Theory number four. All right. So I feel like this one goes without saying, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Um, It definitely could have been a random person. Maybe someone broke into the home and killed Garrett. I don't really know what the motive would have been because nothing was missing. Maybe Garrett interrupted a robbery. Maybe the person was a freak and was just lying in wait because he wanted to kill somebody. I have no idea. What I do know that makes me not think that this was a rando person is that Garrett was strangled, which is a very personal and intimate way to kill someone. You are literally looking them in the face while you're strangling them for like 7-12 minutes. That's a freaking long time to kill someone. 
Another reason I don't think it was a random person is from the testimony that we learn from Marissa Vogel. This is the woman who called the police when she heard the things in the apartment. And I'm going to tell you right now that if I was in my house and a rando popped out from behind a couch or a corner, I would scream like there was no tomorrow. The crime that occurred with Garrett was relatively quiet, which makes me believe it either happened very, very suddenly before Garrett could even react or that Garrett was in the home with someone he knew. So he didn't make a big scene because there was somebody in his house that he knew. So why would he make a big scene? Um, whoever he was with, I think made him feel safe. I think that he felt safe with that person until, you know, he didn't feel safe with that person anymore. And, um, yeah, and this is another reason that I don't think that it could have been Nick because Nick and Garrett, we know that they didn't get along. So you better believe if Garrett just randomly was in Nick's house in his new home, that Nick, that, uh, Garrett probably wasn't going to be cool about it. He'd probably yell and scream, what are you doing here? My mom broke up with you. Get out of my house or something to that effect. The thing that does make me think perhaps that it was a rando person is that DNA that we were talking about that was found underneath Garrett's fingernails. They have not been able to match that DNA to anyone. Not that they looked very far, but it for sure doesn't match Nick or John. And that's the case of Garrett Phillips. Nowadays, Nick is living in New Jersey. He has filed a second civil case against the police department, and the results are currently pending. Tandy is running an after-school program in Garrett's name. Mary Rain, the prosecutor who was, like, super douchey, was banned from working in the state of New York for two consecutive years due to prosecute. Eh, prosecutorial misconduct. That's a very hard word to say. Prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, the biggest travesty in all of this is that Garrett's murder is still unsolved. The correct person has not been held accountable for this crime. And I feel, okay, so I feel like sometimes when it comes to this case, people are getting distracted with the drama and the soap opera-ness of it all, the love triangle and all of that. And Garrett is getting lost in all of it. Garrett was an incredibly amazing, smart, and talented 12-year-old boy. He had his whole life ahead of him to, you know, get annoyed with his mom, to have a first crush, to go on his first date, to score the winning point while he was playing the big game, to drive for the first time, to start a career and maybe have some kids in the house one day, and all of his potential was stolen from him. It was stolen from him. It was stolen from his mother and his brother and his grandparents and his friends. I am saddened that we'll never get to see what he would have chosen for his life. I know that he wouldn't have chosen this to be his legacy. I hope that someday soon, whoever is responsible for this senseless murder of innocent Garrett will be held responsible for that murder. Until then, I'm going to keep looking into this case and all of the other cases that we've covered so far, and I will let you know when updates have been made. I appreciate you coming here today to listen to this episode and for hearing out the story. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to me. If you want to know other ways to support the podcast, you can do so by following us on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. You can also visit the website at mysterystillunsolved.com or leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I mean, hopefully it's a good review, but if 
it's not, that's cool. I mean, I can handle constructive criticism just like the best of us. Um, you could even reach out and send me a nice message that won't really do anything to boost my numbers, but it will boost my self-esteem and literally make my whole month. And you can share the podcast with friends and family who, you know, are true crime nerds like us. Your nerdiness is not only accepted here, but embraced. The final and best way to support me, join me here next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?